Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I am the Reverend Hunter, joined, as always, by Produttore Fantastico, Brandon. I'm going to assume that's Italian, and uh, it sounds better in Italian if that was a... It is Italian. Okay. It is Italian. Uh, my Italian's not great. It's decent. I, I can I can understand it better than I can uh, uh, produce it. Sure. But the word producer was in there. Fantastic producer. Produttore fantastico. That should, because... be, on my, that should be on my business card right there. <laughs> because, I mean, you, you and I are two of the least Italian people. I'm guessing you don't have any Italian blood. Am I not, right? Not a smidge of it. Not even close. Well, in a moment here, I'll I'll introduce our guest this week, who is a full-blooded Italian. Uh, but before we get to that, hey, how was your weekend, man? You're you're uh, you must have gotten in a brawl because your ribs are kind of messed yeah, up, huh? I got in a brawl with old age. I just had a <laughs> just had a birthday about like a week and a half ago, and of course, roll out of bed injured. I didn't oh, do anything dude. special. I just got out of bed injured, slept wrong or something. Yeah, you know, I've had we we've talked about this before, but I've I've had back issues that have started like when I bent over to pick up the newspaper in my driveway, you know. Yeah. It's it's fun. Yeah, uh, yeah. I want aging thing. I don't think I've told this story on the podcast yet. Stop me if I have or edit it out. One time I was in the backyard of an old house of mine at like 4:30 in the morning. And I bent over to adjust the sprinkler, and my back seized up, and I hit the deck. Oh, <laughs> dude! I had to like army crawl to the back door. <laughs> I was getting sprinkled the whole time by the sprinkler. Okay. Oh no! I mean, it's usually like five in the morning because I'm an early riser and whatever. And I get to the back door; it's locked. Oh no! <laughs> I, oh, no. Dude. I like lay there. I lay there for, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour before like one of my kids got up and heard me knocking and I was just lying by the back door of the house getting sprinkled. (laughs) I'm only laughing because it's funny now, but geez, I can't even imagine going through it then just how how long it must have felt for somebody to finally get to you. It was humiliating and oh my gosh. Yeah. Anyway, you'll get better. My man, since we last spoke, uh, I've shot two deer. Wow! I shot them both opening day of firearms. We'll talk about that next week on our fifth—I mean, two weeks from now. Sorry, on our fifth Monday episode, uh, which is just you and me, and I'm I'm looking forward to that. Uh, you having a chance to catch up, and I'll let uh, I'll tell about those uh, the hunt for those two deer, and then I just hustled back up to the cabin yesterday to help my cousin's husband it was wild because we'd been texting and he hadn't shot a deer um and we you know we're kind of separate because of covid and whatever so uh, i thought well my brother and i thought well let's just go up there and you know maybe we can lend him a hand or whatever and as we're driving down the driveway to our cabin he's i'm not kidding standing by the side of the driveway over uh dead white-tailed deer <laughs> oh all right it shot it like two minutes earlier and then we come rolling down the driveway so perfect time for you guys to take care of the dirty work yeah we helped him gut it and t- <laughs> took it in the back of the truck and whatever so that was it's been really fun deer season 
Um, but again, I, I want to encourage people to tune in in a couple weeks when you and I have the rare once in a blue moon fifth Monday episode. And, and if for new listeners of the podcast, you know this podcast comes out the first and third Mondays of every month. And when there is a fifth Monday, Brandon Produttore Fantastico and I um, talk, just the two of us, catch up on life, talk about um, his journey to hunting and talk about my journey deeper into hunting. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's been a fun path we've taken with uh, with lots of twists and turns. <laughs> yeah, so you and I can catch up a little more in a couple weeks. On this week's episode, I'm excited because the guest is full blooded Italiano. Um, this this guy James Chiaverini, he got in touch with me through the internet as one does these days. Because he had listened to the podcast and enjoyed it. And we just started to converse. We started to email back and forth. I read some stuff on his website. Uh, you can read one of the articles he's written in the show notes. Um, and I started to, oh my gosh, I started just to like open his restaurant's website and read the menu and like armchair vacation to his italian restaurant in the heart of london it's like it's one of the highest reviewed best italian spots in all of london founded by his father now run by him and his siblings um and here's the crazy thing brandon he as he as he talks about in this conversation they can serve wild game in restaurants in the uk isn't that something that's a it's a world away from what we have here it is. And, you know, he mentions the Lacey Act, you know, that there was a history, a very bad history of, of uh, market hunters, you know, going out and just killing extraordinary numbers of animals and then delivering them to, um, to restaurants. A lot of people have heard of punt guns, which were these shotguns that could kill, you know, a dozen, two dozen ducks with one shot. Um, you know, we've, we've seen the famous, images of you know buffalo skulls stacked up uh you know 10 men high kind of thing and so there's good reason why wild game you know was banned from from restaurants here in the u.s it might be time to rethink that in the uk and i know in newfoundland in canada is the one province in canada where it can be served it can it, it, they serve it and and what's so awesome about james not only does he serve wild game but he hunts it himself, um, and you can go onto his, you know, restaurant website and see the rotating menu and see kind of you can keep track of what he's been hunting, whether he shot a stag the week before, or whether he went duck hunting, or whether he was out for pheasants. Um, so we have a great conversation. The audio, look, it, the audio may not be up to our usual standards, and I know Brandon, your standards are are the the highest in the business. But you just got, I, I want you to just envision James sitting in his, re you can hear people actually prepping the dinner service behind him as he's uh, talking to me in, uh, in the podcast interview. So imagine that, that this is a working chef, Italian chef. His family came from Italy and he launched, the, his father launched this restaurant 
Il Portico in London. So the the link to his restaurant is also in the show notes. I really encourage you to click on it. And next time we're in London, I don't know when it'll be, but I don't know, sometime in 2021, I'm going to sit down in this guy's restaurant and eat some wild game in London. I cannot wait. It, uh, just hearing him talk was fun enough for me. I always like uh, dealing with people with accents. Yeah. But uh, no, he had a really, really cool story. Um, he was he was just a fun listen. So I think the audience will just enjoy listening to him and, and just the stark differences between United States and over the pond. Yeah, that's right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Enjoy this conversation with James Chiaverini of Il Portico Restaurant in London. Remember to rate, review, and share the Reverend Hunter podcast. We really appreciate all your support. Thanks a lot. James, thank you for joining us on the Reverend Hunter podcast. Thank you, Tony, for having me. It's a real pleasure. Oh, man, it's fantastic. Okay, first things first. things first. I just got to make sure this interview can continue. Okay. <laughs> okay, ready? Carbonara has no cream and no peas. And no mushrooms. And no mushrooms. Okay, good. <laughs> I know that carbonara, at least at the menu I'm looking at, carbonara is not on your menu at the moment. But I mean, come on, people who put who put heavy whipping cream into their carbonara, what an yeah. absolute disgrace to Italian cooking. Yeah, it's a sin against Gordon Man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. We can we we're on the same page. We can continue. I'm so happy. Um, hey, how are things in London now? I know. You guys have been up and down on uh, COVID. Yeah. How, how's it yeah. going to be a restaurant tour in London? So uh, it's yeah, it's pretty challenging at the moment. I mean, yeah. we we really are doing our best efforts to make to stay to stay sane, despite our government's best efforts to kind of drive us all loony. Um, but absolutely, I mean, it. You know, I was thinking about it earlier when I was driving to work, Tony. You know that I think my father's generation, your father's generation, and every generation going back to Adam, when they would build a business or have a professional career, be it farming or factory work or whatever it was that they were doing, would typically take a 30 to 40 year view on that. Mm -hmm. And I think that the problem that we have nowadays is that everybody now, because of credit cards and debt and everything else, Everybody wants to take a three to five year view. You know, hmm. everything has to be done quickly. And the thing if that if you um, if you take a view where, you know, you do it over 30 years, it's not really that bad. You expect some years to be good and some years to be bad. If you do it over sure. a month to 36 month view, it's an absolute disaster. You know, hmm. and if we can if we can tack back to if you can tack back to a system where uh, you know, people take a longer view, then I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's where all the value is. I, I, can, hear, I can hear people in the background. Is your, it's what, 4 p.m. Yeah, in London? It, oh, tell, okay. me, tell me what's happening in... No, I love it. I love it. I want this background noise because I, I'm like... <laughs> I've I'm, been looking out... James, I've been looking out the same window for like eight months now and <laughs> it, i mean i i love my backyard and everything but good lord i would get on a plane in a heartbeat and like be there for your dinner seating tomorrow night 
So at least like take me there, um, you know, in my imagination, tell me about your restaurant and like what's happening right now at 4 p.m. on a on a Thursday afternoon. So now we're basically closed between lunch and dinner. Um, okay. the, the ruckus you could hear was some guy who was late making deliveries and now wants to make them, <laughs> but, but he's just going to have to come back tomorrow. To um, so yeah, I mean, effectively it's a, uh, it's a very old family run restaurant. We we're part of the first wave of Italian restaurants that opened up in this city. You know, mm. people forget that restaurants have only really existed in London for one generation. That was my father's generation. We're part of that whole genesis of it. And um, they all started around the 1960s when a lot of the Italians were uh, brought into the UK to replace the labor that was lost in the Second World War. Hmm. And they were part of that whole vanguard of immigration to rebuild Britain, effectively. And all of the, the, the powerhouse at the time was in the north of England, in the mining towns, in the steelworks, in the factories. But slowly, slowly in the 1960s, London overtook that. And when the burgeoning middle class started coming through, a lot of people wanted to start getting into restaurants. And the Italians were really primed there to be the right age with asset values to be low enough to buy themselves a a piece of the action. And we're pretty much one of the only ones that's left now from that original way. My father, like all of our ancestors, was uh, supplemented his income with uh, rough shooting or hunter gathering. And we've always had that philosophy here. We've always been proud to be able to go out and control the entire chain of food processing. Hmm. Um, so then, you know, at, at 4 p.m., you're prepping yeah. for what, what time do your doors open for dinner? Six o'clock. Okay. Six o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. And are you at like 50% seating or what's the situation for COVID? How's it different from a normal, you know, how it's been since 1967? So we've lost around uh, 40% of our capacity. Uh, Inside, we can still seat the same amount of capacity outside, but, you know, we've got heaters and everything, but still, I mean, October's knocking on, so it's not exactly, uh, it's not exactly the Cayman Islands out there, you know, and, um, (laughs) but, you know, I mean, it's, it's, to be honest with you, Tony, it's fine. So we don't, so we don't make any money this year. Big deal, you know. You know, more hmm. time for more time for mushroom hunting and, and you know and, and duck shooting and everything else. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's it's just one of those things that happens every now and then, you know. And um, and thankfully, we're blessed enough that we've built up enough goodwill over the last fifty-three years, so that when the um, when the tide does go out and the, and the floodwaters rise, we've got enough. Uh, primal connections with our customers to make sure they keep coming back to us. And so we're, we're pretty packed out every night. Thank you. Know, hmm. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. Well, I want to get into cooking later and I'm, I, I love Italian food and I love Italy and we're going to talk about our shared love affair with Italy a little bit later. But before that, um, I, you've done some really insightful writing about hunting. And, and before I even get into that, you know, we don't even, we often don't think of the UK as a place where hunting is, is really even possible. I mean, I don't, and, and maybe I'm wrong about that, but not only, you know, not only do you serve game at your restaurant, but you, yeah. 
you know, you write about hunting, you're an active hunter and, you know, what, what I, my, my biased presuppositions about the UK, which I'll allow you to uh, disabuse me of, are, is that, you know, nobody has guns, there's no wild game and yeah. the hunting is like driven pheasant hunts with guys in tweed coats and a yeah. servant holding your, uh, you know, load, loading your shotgun for you, like, like on Downton Abbey or whatever. Um, yeah, I even follow, I even follow some, uh, there's some Twitter account called like ammo and tweed. That's these, you know, photos of these driven pheasant hunts. So, okay. Disabuse me of all that and tell me how, you know, raw uh, wild game hunting is in the UK and how I'm wrong. Okay, so the first thing is is that you're not entirely wrong. So there is, okay, there, good. Is, there, is a, there is a huge amount of, of, what, of, of, of exactly what you described that happens in the UK. Uh, oh. As far as I know, the UK is the only country in the world that separates the terms shooting and hunting. So if you oh. say hunting in the UK what people immediately think of is hunting foxes on horseback with a pack of hounds. Mm -hmm. And shooting is basically you're standing on your peg and Jeeves loaves your, your perfectly matched Holland side by sides <laughs> for you. And, yeah, you know, and, and, uh, and the, your butler basically flushes out a pen raised bird in front of you, 30 yards in front of you. So you can't hardly miss it. And, and yeah. that does happen. That does absolutely happen. That, that is, huh. that is part of the British, aristocracy and that is part of the whole makeup of the uk society i mean remember that we haven't been successfully invaded and we haven't had any any political change in this country since 1066 so you've got a thousand years of aristocracy and you've got all the game laws and all the access laws in terms of uh, access to rivers access to woodlands access to arable farming is all you know, done in the favor of the aristocracy. Mm -hmm. So that does absolutely happen, but it is changing. And I want to be part of the vanguard that changes the, starts entering hunting more into the British vocabulary away from what, you know, fox hunting with hounds and more into a kind of more North American model of conservation, which is mm -hmm. uh, actually not too dissimilar in Europe. In Europe, there it's not a million. It's a sort of halfway house between the North American model and the British model. Okay. Um, but it, it all depends. On, I mean, there's various things that you can and can't do in the UK. Unfortunately, we don't have public lands, which is a big hindrance to us. Uh, firearms access is nowhere nearly as restrictive as as most people think it is. Okay. Um, it's certainly more restrictive than certain American states. Um, but it's it's not that bad. I mean. What the law officially says is if you want to have a so deer hunting rifle, so for example, my 308, um, I just need to show good reason why I want that particular caliber. And if you can show good reason, then, then they will give you it. You know? hmm. um, but we are allowed to sell wild game. We are allowed to commercialize wild game. We never had the Lacey Act in, uh, over here. And, um, and so long as you've passed your accredit accreditation and meet and, like game meat hygiene like I have, then you get given a trained hunter ID and that ID will then tag every single piece of um, quarry that goes into the food system. And that might be a rabbit or a snipe or a teal or a red stag. It could be absolutely anything. And um, so wow. it gives you more opportunity in one sense 
to go out there and be, let's say, like a more, more sort of 19th century style market hunter. Uh, but there's certainly a lot less access and there's a lot less um, ways that we can get into it, unlike America and unlike Scandinavia and unlike mainland Europe. Yeah. Hmm. You so so you're the the game you're serving. Um. It, 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 do you have some wild game and then some farm raised game? Is it a combination? So I typically only shoot wild birds. If I'm going to go out on a bird shoot, I'm not really going to waste my time on on a driven pheasant shoot where they've been uh-huh. and all that kind of stuff. Um. It it's about as interesting as around the golf to me. To be honest, yeah. With you. I, I want to go yeah. out. And I want to go out with my father and my brother, and we want to work the dogs, and we want to go out on a wild bird, you know, you know, wild bird day, which is increasingly popular. I'm very pleased to say, and thanks hmm. to COVID, that's it's made um, what they used to call that used to be known as rough shooting. Well, it kind of still is known as rough shooting or walked up shooting, um, which is basically what I imagine a pheasant hunt to be in America like. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, I mean, you can get access to basically through syndicate clubs. So if you want to go, say, wildfowling or waterfowling, then anything underneath the high water marks, um, you can pay, you typically pay a subscription fee to a, a, like a, a wildfowling club, and they okay. will maintain that marshland uh, in terms of, you know, the better ones will maintain it, you know, good standards of conservation. And you basically purchase the right to go, hunt uh, migratory uh, waterfowl in, the, in you know, winning seasons, effectively. And typically, it's not terribly expensive, maybe 200 pounds a year or, or something similar to that. Um, okay, so uh, tell me when you, when you go out on a... I mean, do you also serve farm-raised game on your, at your... Yeah. My, my, I guess my question is, is there enough wild-hunted game to to um provide your restaurant with the meat that you want to serve like obviously if 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 you go out and shoot a stag you can serve venison you know right for a while but it it's a lot of you know i mean i hunt pheasants a lot i and, and no matter how many pheasants i shoot it would be tough to keep uh uh to have to shoot enough to serve at a restaurant is you know yeah yeah, so that's not all we serve, uh, and every and we all typically only have them on as a special. So at the yeah, moment, okay. we've got partridge, and we've got ten partridge, and when they're all gone, they're all gone. I know? see. And and they weren't shot by me; they were shot by a friend. Then they were part, and they, they were pen raised partridges. They're what we call here French partridges because they've got red legs, um, and like you say, the Hungarian and the English grey partridge. But uh-huh. you can, I mean, yeah, I mean, if I can't rely on wild birds, which are you know, which are you know, you can't, there's no consistency in that food chain, then, then yeah, our fallback option is always, is always, um, is always farm raised as it were. Um, but you can, but I mean, venison is, is normally plentiful in the UK. Yes. There are people farm raising venison, but to be honest with you, there's such an abundance of wild that it doesn't really make much commercial sense. Gotcha. Now, when you're serving a when you're serving a shot, uh, you know, a, a hunted bird, do you have to um, put a a disclaimer on the menu that people need to look out for pellets when they're going, you know, when they're eating their uh, partridge? Or? <laughs> no, so not currently because because lead is still in vogue, but lead is being phased out over the next okay. five years in the UK, and everybody's going to make the change to steel. 
the problem with steel is that you've got to go up a shot size or go down the shot size in terms of basically the, the you know the diameter of the actual ball bearing and lead is pretty malleable as, as we all know you know yeah you don't chip your pellet. you're not going to chip your tooth on a on a six shot lead no. pellet but you exactly. might chip your tooth on a four shot steel exactly that's the problem that we've got as as, as we move from lead to steel then this is an, this is an issue so if I'm if I'm serving uh, migratory waterfowl, which is all shot with steel in the UK, yep. then you have to absolutely put a disclaimer in there, one hundred and fifty percent, because then you're talking about cracking somebody's model in two. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and to be honest with you, I don't need no ambulance chasing lawyers at my door because somebody, because somebody somebody didn't enjoy their you know their their, their pink footed goose the way that it was supposed to be, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to turn to your blog post that I will link in the show notes for people to read. And uh, it, it was particularly poignant to me, your, your post, because I'm 52 and I have had two friends my age commit suicide this year. Um, and both have committed suicide by firearm. Um, so your post, you actually address that. You address the malaise, the depression that you see um, uh, in adult men. Yeah, right off the top, uh, you know, in the first paragraph, you write about this. Um, what you know? How have you linked hunting to this malaise that you point out, and that I've? seen firsthand in my friends yeah i think that um it's a tough one tony i think that we live in a world of material abundance where everything is given to us on a plate Mm -hmm. um or anyway all material goods are given to us on a plate and i think that it comes at a cost i think that the cost of that is living in a sense of say mystical or spiritual deficiency and i think that anything we can do to address that balance i think is 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 is, is very much a positive act um it's tough when you base your whole life around the the success of being a financial success of being a big cheese in, in the corporate in the corporate world and it doesn't really make you any happier. And I think that we are looking at levels of suicide, you know, which are going through the roof. Suicide is now the leading cause of death for men under 35. And um, we've seen cases of substance abuse, alcohol abuse rise, you know, catastrophically. You know, yeah. 400% I think since 1988. And you think, well, how is this possible that if we live in a world where everything is given to us, how is it possible that we're just not happy anymore? And I came across, I'm a big fan of the Franciscan scholar, Richard Raw. Yes. I came across one of his quotes where, you know, he says, I think that he says that, you know, most modern neuroses are a direct result of a lack of common shared story under which our individual stories are written. And it's this sense that we don't have this transcendent reference anymore. We don't have this larger significance because mm-hmm. we've zoomed in so narrowly of, of, of our point of focus has become so narrow that we miss the real meaning of life in one sense. I think that it's, uh, I genuinely believe that hunting 
or spending time engaged in uh, a concentrated effort of, 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 of thought out in the woods or in the stream or if you're fishing or, or whatever that may be, I think you have to strip away all that kind of, all that material abundance in order to mm-hmm. get back to the sense of what our true nature is and what our true nature you know, has to be. And we have to call, call that voice from that goes back billions and billions of years. You know, it's this yeah. idea that you're 52, I'm 40. It's like this idea that you think that you're a 52-year-old guy and I'm a 40-year-old guy, but we're not. We are, the, you know, the, the amalgamation of 3 billion years of primal ancestry. Mm-hmm. And then the, then the actual years that we've actually been here on the planet, it's just literally just the tip of the iceberg. But it's being able to... to engage with and have a dialogue with that ancestry that I think that then and enables the, the, the camera lens to zoom out of your life a little bit, takes the pressure off you as an ego for one moment, mm. actually thinking a little bit about your issues in the here and now. Does that make sense, Tony? Yeah. And I think that it, it understanding your place in the larger scheme of things in, in, in the world, especially when you're hunting, especially solo hunting, say if I'm stalking a deer, Mm-hmm. And be incredibly therapeutic, incredibly therapeutic for me. And I miss it when I'm out of season. I miss it. I miss the hell out of it because I get yeah. buried under emails and I get buried with stress and I get buried with doing the school run and getting my kids to school on time. And I don't get a chance to just be, just to, just mm-hmm. to appreciate the world for what it actually is. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. And have even a few weeks ago, I. I had a podcast episode with Rob Bell, uh, an author here in the um, in the U.S., former pastor, spiritual guy, and we kind of compared his love for surfing uh, with my love for hunting, and found a lot of parallels uh, yeah. of you know being in tune with the world and the flow of the planet, um, yeah. the rhythms of nature. Uh, him trying to, you know, suss out a wave and, and, you know, and he's talking about how the waves are, you know, pulled by the moon and the rotation of the earth. And he's, you know, yeah. getting in touch with that. And I feel the same way. And yeah. I like you, I mean, I miss the hell out of hunting those in those months when I can't do it and think about it constantly. And, but I'm also, I'm always, you know, as a theologian, I'm trying to articulate and get words around that. I thought it was, I really liked what you wrote, you know, particularly, yeah, I'm a fan of Richard Rohr as well, but you also bring um, some Buddhist thought into it. You bring, um, you bring, I mean, it's interesting, you refer to the Paschal Mystery, you refer to Carl Jung. Um, what, what, well, I guess I'm wondering, like, where do you where do you go for these resources? Is this stuff you you were trained in? I mean, you obviously your interests go beyond being a, a restaurateur and a and a chef. Yeah, I think I think it's difficult because I started getting into really hunting when I was an adult, when I was like 35. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, I was thinking about this yesterday, that I only started getting into hunting when I was about to have my first child. Mm. And I wondered why, and I wondered whether that was a coincidence or not. 
and I think it's you get called for you have there's this voice that only really only starts to happen to you in middle age where the sort of you know you spend your whole teens in your 20s and early 30s you know and it's all about me 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 it's very mm-hmm. ego ego driven world that you want to live in and then when you start to get older you start to understand that you can't control everything and then when you start to have your own children the sort of voice calls forth from within that almost calls you forth into a, a new adventure hmm. this sense that you have you know that I felt a very much the responsibility of, of being a provider, you know, that provision suddenly became very yeah. I never really yeah. thought about that before, you know, and I started researching it more and more and more. And I started researching it at the same time that I started, you know, deer stalking when I was about five years ago. Now. And it huh. just, the two things just ran perfectly parallel in my mind the whole time. You know, it's like this idea, you know, this old Jesuit idea that, you know, that, is the ability to see the divine in anything that you look at, you know, and, and it's like, you know, I think I can't remember the, the, the specific gospel passage. And I'm, I'm sure you'd know better than I do, but there's one part where he says, you know, I think Jesus says, you know, if you, if you cleave a, a log, you'll find it there. If you look at a stone, you'll find it there. It's this idea that there's, there's this, there's this transcendent reverence that sort of permeates the whole of, of, of society, you know, mm-hmm. and it's only it's only with a sense of maturity that you can really get into it. Do you see what I mean? And it's just yeah. reading by my own from my own musings in a tree stand, waiting for a buck to show up, or you know, in a duck blind, you know, before dawn, you know. And I think that's mm-hmm. that's the best time to really think about things, you know, to really properly think about what it means to start to see infinite in the finite. If you see what I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that there's that there's a great Jim Harrison quote. That, that I wrote about on that blog post where he says, you know, if you enter the woods with the right attitude, it's, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's like if I enter the woods with the right attitude, suddenly I feel, you know, born again, but also 70,000 years old because I'm immersed within this whole feelings of, of, of divine creation since the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. And it's such a therapeutic feeling. It's such a wonderful form of therapy to basically to spend that time engaged in that thought and and it doesn't have you don't have to prescribe to any particular religion to be that and i think that there are parallels amongst all the major religions with this and i think certainly i mean my own background was i consider myself a sort of cradle catholic in the sense that i was baptized as a baby and i didn't really think about it for the next 30 or 40 years um but yeah the, the the two things hunting and 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 mystical or spiritual development have certainly paralleled themselves since having children. Let's put it that way. There's certainly been mm-hmm. that 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 cognitive shift in my mind. Yeah, I, I'm in my my tr- I track a very similar kind of pattern as you in that I've I also have been hunting deer for about five years and hunting um, ducks and pheasants for maybe fifteen years. You know, but it was an adult. It was an adult kind of onset um, endeavor for me, which is, I suppose it's the same there in the UK, but it, that's unusual here. I guess I, I, I do find it happening more, but yeah. it is a hard, it's hard to break into because a lot of the people who hunt, I mean, it must be especially hard in the UK where there's no public land. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, as an adult to break in, like where do you even go and and, and how do you get the gear? And there's a yes. lot of programs he, here about like mentoring. Yeah. But what I what I don't what I've found that you know really stood out in, in your writing is that you've thought about it in this more spiritual way, yeah. which that seems to be lacking. I think in the hunting community, it's now. Oh, here's what I want to. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Here's a tricky thing that I wonder if you can help me reflect on. Um, the, a lot of the hunting uh, community around here, the hunting media, I guess, so like the, especially like the hunting TV shows, but you also see it in magazines and in the, uh, you know, ads for shotguns and rifles or whatever. It's very um, machismo, masculine, mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. of like dudes high fiving after they shoot a deer. <laughs> Now, yeah, another grip and oh, grin photos. Yeah, a lot of grip and grins, those kind of <laughs> things. Okay, but you write about that. Yeah, I mean, here's what's tricky is that um, you write about that, and you it, 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 even in this post, it seems like you know you're going to take some heat for kind of some gender stereotyping or whatever. Yeah, but but you're you're obviously very sensitive. Um, to it and and obviously coming at it from a spiritual point of view, but there is trying to like thread this needle, I guess, between on the one hand um, the the hyper masculine uh, version of hunting that that is so prevalent in America, and on the other hand, kind of washing out all gender difference, which yeah. you obviously don't agree with, so. Yeah, how do you thread that needle, I guess? Well, I think whenever you talk about gender, I think it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a political minefield. In a sense, and a cultural minefield as well at the moment, currently. Mm-hmm. But I, I really dislike identity politics, and I really dislike people reducing everything down to a cultural or political battle. I see it as much more important than that. And I think that um, there needs to be a certainly a celebration of differences between people. And I don't think that it has to be a zero-sum game that um, that somebody has to win it. That, for example, men have to win and women have to lose. I think that it's uh, we need to sort of collaborate and understand the, the, the biological differences that have been formed between men and women over billions of years of ancestry. I don't mm-hmm. think that can be. I don't think that can be reduced away just to, to just just pure contemporaneous culture. Um, and if we don't learn from ourselves, like Marcus Cicero said, you know, the, the person who goes through life without understanding what happened before them will always go through life like a child. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very that's a very correct way of looking at things. And we have to be able to take this seriously. We have to look into why there is this malaise amongst people. Why there is this current malaise amongst certainly amongst young men. And um, what are we going to do to fix it? That doesn't necessarily mean that that it's we are enabling a uh, patriarchal system that keeps women under the thumb by any means. Um, I read um, and shared a piece the other day about um, New Zealand about a Maori woman helping other women to get into hunting. And, you know, I, I think it would be absolutely great. I would love to see more women out in the woods and in the field. Mm-hmm. I would absolutely love to see that. And I actually think that 
probably they would probably make better hunters than guys if we were to be honest about it mm. but i just don't think that it has to be an equality of outcome i think you have to have a system where there is a celebration of everything that is unique about us that makes us all slightly different does that make sense to me? Mm-hmm, and, I think mm-hmm. if, and I think as long as you handle that, that subject sensitive, sensitively, I don't think that's why you should really necessarily get any heat. Um, yeah. I think that the problem really stems from the fact that a lot of people will look at something like hunting and like you said, it's the grid, the grin photo, which I don't personally share online. I don't take any photos of myself with any dead animals. I understand mm-hmm. why people do that and I can understand why they want to celebrate that. And if you look at the, you know, the oldest ever forms of cave art, it's normally people, you know, stick men hunting, you know, hunting a, a, a you know, a large mammal. So yeah. I totally understand why people want to encapsulate that feeling. But at the same point, I'm sensitive enough to know that bridges are there to be built and not to be burned. And we need to, if we want to safeguard hunting for future generations, we need to make sure that it's done with enough respect and enough reverence to make sure that there is certainly the access on the opportunities for my kids, you know, to do it. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to do that by driving a wedge in between gender stereotypes. We're going to do that by acknowledging differences and trying to bring them closer together. Yeah, I think... Um you know, to, to probably to over at the risk of overgeneralizing, I think you're really right that there's in you know men, adult men, the there's a malaise. Yeah. I think COVID COVID has especially exacerbated this. And again, to probably overly generalize, but I think among women in Western culture, there's probably more anxiety. Yeah. Um, is what they maybe suffer from more. And I think, you know, <laughs> I honestly think like getting outside and hunting and fishing is an antidote for both of those. Yeah, I totally agree. I completely yeah. agree. I think both of those things are created by our current society. Yeah. And if we can leave our society alone for, for a day and spend the day in the woods, then the problem disappears. So the problem isn't innate within us. The problem has been created by our culture. You know, yeah. and this is why I get so angry when, you know, when people talk about hunting as a sport, you know, it's, it's a real mm-hmm. burr under my saddle because I think, well, you know what, football and rugby and golf is a sport. Hunting is more important than that. Hunting is the only yeah. thing that connects every single man, woman and child, all 8 billion of us in this world together. It's the only shared story and ancestry that we actually have that connects us. It's the blueprint mm. to all our primal inner working. And that's as close as you're going to get to understanding your own soul. And that's more, that, that's more important than gender. That's more important than anything. You know, you're not going to get that by, you know, on the golf course. You know, right. all of us are, are built on hunting platforms, men and women, you know. And, um, you know, we have to, in one sense, strip away all the, all the crap that goes along with um, – with societal, you know, uh, material abundance in one sense, all the all the rubbish that gets shoved down our throat from these vacuous marketing campaigns telling us mm-hmm. what makes a man or what makes a woman, and it's just absolute baloney. You just need to go out there and just live it, you know, and and you'll find your happiness there. You'll find it yourself. 
but it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, it takes a few years to build up, but the siren song starts when you're alone, I think, you know, and, and, um, and I, I, you know, I talk to women about this and they feel exactly the same way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, same, same for me. I, I, I think it's like I say. I think it's an antidote to probably two different ailments. Um, tell me about. Okay, you teased me the last time we chatted briefly about a duck hunt in Wales. <laughs> tell me, tell me, give me just like again. I want to do some like uh, virtual tourism since I can't actually go anywhere since you know, your country does not want Americans to visit at the moment. Well, I think that's uh, our government. I don't think this is the same as our country. Our <laughs> okay, okay. Your government doesn't yeah. want Americans. Yeah, the man Fair enough. 10. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good old uh, Boris. Uh, yeah, good old <laughs> Boris. Um, <laughs> d- uh, tell me what that, tell me, uh, describe that, uh, a duck hunt in Wales. What's that like? So, am I right in thinking from your surname, Jones, that you're Welsh? Yes, that's right. Yeah, okay. So, do you know whereabouts in Wales you're from? Uh, yeah, um, a town called Machno, Pen Machno, which I think is nothing more than a little crossroads. Okay, so, have, have you Googled uh, it? I'll, let me look it up while you're telling me. Um, so yes, it'll be interesting I, to know if it's South Wales, North Wales, or, or roughly where it is. I mean, Wales, me Wales, is, Wales is great. Wales is an amazing country. Um, I have a lot of family that went there. A lot of there's a huge Italian diaspora that went to Wales. And, okay. Um, they, you know, they're Celtic guys, so you know, there's, you know, that I find them to be much more in tune with nature than we are in England. I find them to be much more uh, romantically inclined than the English. I find mm-hmm. them to be much more. You know, they love their. They love their community. They love their singing. They love their food. They love their valleys and their hills, and they love their nature. You know, and uh, farming and, and hunting is not by any means class associated in Wales as it is in the UK. As sorry, really? in England more. I don't think so. I mean, you'd have to really speak to somebody who is more expert at that. I only really have a cursory knowledge, but this is just my feeling of it. Um, North Wales, especially, is is, is very rural. Very well okay, this is quiet. this this village is in. Uh, it says uh, Wikipedia tells me it's Pen Machno is a village in the isolated upland Machno Valley, four miles south of Betsy E. Coed. I can't in in the county of Conwy, North Wales. So it looks North like Wales. it's just you know west southwest of Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty. I mean, that's that's pretty. You know, that's about as wilderness as you're going to get in Wales. There. Okay. Yeah. So that. I mean, that. I mean, that's certainly worth visiting there. How far are you? Are you near the coast there? Can you go? Wild? It says. It says it's. It, it's in the middle of Snowdonia National Park, and it's oh, not beautiful. on the coast. But is it? Yeah. Okay. So that's that's where my people come from. Yep. Beautiful. That is well worth a visit. That is okay. totally worth a visit. That should be number one in your, on, your, on your list the next year as soon as this COVID <laughs> disaster has abated. Um, All right. Yeah, I mean, if, yeah, I mean there you got, you're going to have plenty of woodcock. You're going to have there's, – there's a grouse moors in Wales. I mean, wild sport in Wales is really fantastic. You, you mm. know, migratory waterfowl, so your widgeon and mallard and teal and mm. um, 
you know, and all that great stuff. Uh, Grey-like geese, Canada geese, pink-footed geese. Um, and then you're going to have your uh, grouse. There's, there's grouse moles and thinking whales. And then um, I don't know if there's any – I'm assuming that there's quite a few deer in Wales. I don't know. I, haven't, I don't know anybody who deer shoots there. But, I mean, you, you could have really a, a great week or really wild – uh, wild endeavors there um, and you know and very little farm raised you know very little pen raised birds there I've got a okay. I've got a friend of mine on social media I'll connect you with him who basically runs um, <laughs> more sort of like wild weekends for guys who are a bit fed up or standing on pegs waiting for Jeeves to load their Holland horns like we said earlier <laughs> you know these are like you know I mean and, you know and, and I, I'm a firm believer in the in the 30% rule that I, I don't think that you should be successful any more than 30% you know, then, then one in three times that you go out hunting. I think if you're oh, interesting. more than that, it, well, it kind of gets boring after a while, you know? It's like yeah. if every time you went deer hunting, you came back with a 10-point stag, it's like you just wouldn't want to go back, yeah. you know? And I think, I think if, you look at, if you look at the top predators in the African savannah, look at like the big cats, their success rate's around 30%, and I'm like, I don't think we should be better than a leopard, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, I don't really want to be, you know, because after it just comes, you're kind of cheating the system. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, this, yeah. It's like there's a system in place. And, you know, and you want to go to somewhere like Wales. You want to go, you want to go, you know, you want to go out, you know, on, on wildfowl below the high water mark, out on the coastline, out on the estuaries, you know, waiting for migratory birds to fly in or woodcock or whatever it may be. You're, yeah, I mean, a 30%, your one in three chances is probably is probably generous okay you know so yeah. if, if, yeah. You, if you don't mind getting cold and wet <laughs> and you know and you like that and yeah. you know and, and you got a you got a dog that's good in water you know you got a good labrador a good chessie or something like that then by all means head to wales tony that that is your, all that's, right. your, that's your ticket <laughs> that is absolutely your ticket i think wales scotland and then further afield iceland Scandinavia, right. uh, Ireland, I think it's miraculous places to go. Man, I absolutely am going to put that on my list for post-COVID. Um, <laughs> hey, let's let's um, turn our attention southward to Emilia-Romagna, uh, yep. the, the, the part of northern Italy that, that's the cuisine that you focus on in your London restaurant. Yeah. Um, I love it. I love that part of Italy uh, and have been there many times and have been to Bologna. And then, you know yeah. what? I just recently on my last trip to Italy went to Padua for the first time, which I absolutely loved that town just a uh, little did you bit go and have a look at the frescoes oh yeah oh yes i mean what yeah amazing amazing place yeah. and i've been to ravenna many times and yeah so um tell me about uh how you you know how do you merge that style of northern italian cooking with wild game what's what's your secret yeah. i mean where where we're from Really, I mean, my family settled in our village in Emilia-Romagna in the Apennine Mountains in about the 13th century. Mm. So between 1200 and X through to 1958, nothing really changed. Um, it was arduous work. I mean, it's very hilly, so there's a lot mm -hmm. of, um, you know, a lot, you know, horse and you know, everything was done by horse and cart. You plowed your fields with a mule, 
um, and there wasn't a whole lot to go around. Um, what there was was an abundance of, of of wild game, which was used to supplement supplement your both your your nutritional income and your financial income. So my father grew up um, roaming the valleys of Emilia Romagna with his dog and his home loaded shotgun shells and his old wow. you know, old, old Beretta side by side from the 1920s. Hmm. And um, you know and you know, shooting hares, shooting um, quails, shooting partridge, and, you know, walking, you know, to the local market to, to, to swap them, to sell them. I mean, my dad was like a market hunter, as it were, as a kid. You know, there wasn't really a great sense of currency around in Italy, you know. Everything was done more on a kind of bartering basis. You know, people forget just how how unindustrial it was, you hmm. know, for, for a yeah. very, very, very long time, certainly after the Second World War. I mean, the, you know, Mussolini left the country in just abject ruin, and it took them a long time to build it up. Um, but, you know, that was my father's childhood. That was my grandfather's life. That was his father's life and going back generations, you know. The idea that you would go out and you would shoot for the pot. And if you had an abundance, you would sell it or swap it for yarn or a kilo of salt or, or, or whatever you had. Mm-hmm. And you looked at the game, the, the, the prevalence of wild game in your area in the same way that you would look at the prevalence of wild mushrooms or harvesting pears or harvesting apples from fruit trees, that it was there as a means to supplement your sustenance, you know? Hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that's a very correct way of looking at it. I think that's how we should all look at it. And fundamentally, I, don't, I mean, this sounds strange to people who, who have never hunted before, but it would probably make more sense to you, Tony, that, I, you know, I grow some fruit and veg in the, in, the, in the bottom of my garden just for me and my kids to enjoy and my wife. And mm-hmm. when, I, when I, you know, pull up my potatoes and harvest a carrot, I genuinely don't see any difference between that and taking a deer home. Yeah. You know, I think that you, we all, you all have, you live in this permanent state of interconnectedness with nature. And, you know, you access this transcendent reverend that we mentioned at the beginning, that you're all part of this great cosmos. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just, a, it's just a wonderful way to live. It really is. A, and, you know, to bring that to the UK, is I mean my father suddenly you know carried on shooting in the UK but I wasn't terribly into it as a kid I didn't really understand it I didn't mm-hmm. really understand what it was about I didn't get the whole appeal until I was old enough to access that level of knowledge it was like a door had been opened you know and um, mm-hmm. and and the English here in London certainly giving it that Italian twist gives it a certain certain different sense of provenance than maybe they're used to yeah and a different way of dealing with game that maybe they're used to and that gives us it's sort of another string to our bow if that makes sense tony yeah 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 Uh, yeah and 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 it goes down well it goes down very well um you know italian food and italian cuisine is still probably the most popular in the western world and it's still certainly the most i hate to use the term lowest common denominator but it's certainly it's certainly the one food that everybody loves you know, and to give it that little wild twist is really great. I mean, it's not yeah. just the game, it's also the mushrooms and truffles and chestnuts and the walnuts and the blackberries we forage and everything else. And it's about having yeah. that, it's about having that interdependency with nature on your plate, which I think people really respect. Yeah, I mean, this is like, uh, again, it, it's tough not to be uh, in Italy right now because it's we're, we're approaching truffle season and I love being yeah. there in October, November. Yeah. 
when basically no matter what you get on your plate, they will come over and ask you if you want them to <laughs> great, great a fresh truffle over the top of it. You know, yeah. it's just and then present you with in the bill afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, it's not cheap. Um, okay, so this this episode of the podcast is going to air. Uh, on the week of the the Thanksgiving in the U.S., which is, you know, arguably the day the, the most important cooking holiday in the U.S. Um, yeah, a lot of people do turkeys here. That's the traditional meal. Um, do you do turkey in your restaurant? Is that something that makes the menu on occasion, or no? No, so we don't. We okay. don't have any turkeys in 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 Italy. Um, we um yeah normally uh i think turkeys for, for the in england is always a christmas bird okay uh, okay but a lot of people now you know cook goose um uh we so I sometimes do like a wild goose if i can get like a pink-footed goose if i can shoot one for, for christmas if I can shoot how one tell one. me a, give give us you know goose the the goose that we usually shoot here are um C- canada geese yeah. or snow or, or snow geese and honestly neither of them has a very great diet the canada yeah. goose around here eats like uh, golf course grass and they they're they're <laughs> diff i will say they're difficult to prepare well mostly yeah, i them. mostly i grind up my goose and mix it with pork fat and make yeah. meatballs or yeah. sausage or something like that so if you got give us a, a tip or two for goose preparation yeah so i like for canadas i normally breast them out um i don't i don't really and um i brine the breast so if you, okay. you put them in in, 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 a, in a nice salt water brine and that takes away some of the livery taste but it really does canadas over here don't taste that bad i know people really rag on them in the state they say that you mm-hmm. know canadas are they're the absolute you know the pits of like diver ducks you know that that people don't like to eat them but you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I've, I've had them as a substitute for beef bourguignon. I've had like Canada, like Canada goose bourguignon. And to be honest, uh-huh. it's pretty good. You just okay. you know, you can't expect it to be like a well juicy marble T-bone of beef. But, you know, it, 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 I think, I think you're right in the sense that it depends on what they've been feeding, right? Yeah. It depends on what they've been eating. I mean, I've had duck, but people say in the UK that teal is, is the best duck to eat, but I've had some teal which are horrible and I've had some widget that have been delicious. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it really does depend on on on, on the fat levels and what they've been eating. But certainly, certainly with Canada's, I wouldn't. Oh, you know, I I tend not to, I tend not to go beyond the breast. To be honest with you, which is um, okay. Which is I sort of break my golden rule with game birds because I like to pluck all my birds. You know. Yeah. How about uh, yeah. pheasant? Let Let's talk about pheasant for a second because it, here in you know late November in the states, a lot of listeners of the podcast will have some pheasants in their freezer. They might want to, yeah. they might want to supplement the uh, you know the the Thanksgiving turkey with a pheasant or two on yeah. the side or as an appetizer or something like that. Now, I I am like you. I'm I, I'm pretty uh, adamant about plucking ducks. I tend not to pluck pheasants because they're. I find them difficult to pluck, and yeah. th- they just don't have the fat content in the skin that the ducks do. But yeah. tell me yeah. first of all, ev- evangelize me as to why I should pluck my pheasant, and then tell me what I should do with it after that. Okay, so the 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 one thing that I would mention is you need to get yourself a dry plucking machine. Mm-hmm. So you, okay. I don't know 
they, they basically it's like a seven disc or an eleven disc machine with basically twin motors and discs basically oscillate. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wait a second. I, you tweeted about this a couple of weeks ago, and I clicked yeah. on the link or searched it or something. Yeah. They're like two thousand dollars. These, these eBay. eBay is your best friend, Tony. <laughs> eBay is your best friend. Wait till the wait till the season ends, and uh, wait till the game season ends, and you can pick them up for like two hundred quid. You know. Really. I yeah. bought my brother uh, I, for my brother's uh, like forty fifth birthday. I bought him one of the wet pluckers, oh, where yeah. you you scald the bird and then you drop it in the bin and it spins. Yeah, yeah it with destroyed the, the ducks. It destroyed yeah. the ducks. Yeah, they're, no, they're, yeah. You need the dry one. The dry one is okay. the only one worth getting. If uh, okay. if I were, when I'm you know if I was king of England, I would a hundred percent. I would give them to every family for Christmas every year. <laughs> Every, every family would have a dry plucking machine. Like I'd be like, you know, Bob Crutchit, you know, and you know, I'd be like, every, everybody gets one, you know. I okay. think that I evangelize them constantly because um, we need to get game into the food chain, and yeah, um, yeah. and and people will only have their birds if they're oven ready. People don't like plucking their own things, in the, and you know, and I get given plenty of birds in the feather, and it doesn't bother me one bit. But hmm. pheasants can be tricky because the skin tears. And they yes. and some guys dunk them in hot water first. You know, my dad, who's 81, will sit there all day on his stool plucking birds. But I love it. He's 81 years old and he doesn't have a mortgage. <laughs> he doesn't have. He doesn't, <laughs> right, <you> know, right. <laughs> you know, it's like with all due respect to my dad, it's like that ain't going to happen with me. So you right. need to find a way to do it quick. Um, so okay. eBay, eBay is your friend. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it, it's it is. A so I've got my plucked. I've got my plucked pheasant. Yeah. Then what? Then what? So you got your plucked. So I don't see. This is this is almost you know heretical talking in the UK. But I don't hang my birds. Okay. So the UK, they typically would hang them guts in, right by the neck, until the meat would putrefy to an extent that the weight of the body would snap the neck and they would fall on the floor, and then you can and eat them. God, yeah, that, I've heard about that, this. Yeah, that's a, that's how what they call a high bird. You know, when they say is the game high, uh, but that that's not my style. I I okay. just I, I I gut them straight away and leave them if it's if it's winter outside, I just hang them from the from the from the uh, from the timber struts in my garage, or, or if it's not cold enough, I put them in a, in, a, in a fridge hanging up by the neck, and uh, and I just leave them a couple of days just just to mature. But once, okay. uh, in in the feather, once they've been plucked. Um, you you know fat is flavor with pheasants right so I you know I you know pancetta is brilliant so any like really unctuously deep fatty you know uh, Italian style bacon is hmm. is a is a great addition to it onion sausage meat chestnuts all that kind of stuff that's really you know really abundant in 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 autumn you know really you know sort of season the bird well you know and just and just Put them in the pot, man. They're just absolutely delicious. Absolutely hmm. delicious. I love. Them. Okay. Oh, I love them. Don't overcook them. Just leave them a little bit bloody by the bone, you know, and just just enjoy them the way that they are. You know, I mm. mean, there's plenty of ways. I mean, people get really creative with it. Yeah. But you know, ultimately, you know, there's not that many ways you can skin a cat. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah. You know, and you know, I I really enjoy my pheasants now, but by January, I'm so sick of eating the bloody things. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I would kill for a piece of steak right now, you know. As, <laughs> I would kill for it, you know. Okay, okay. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, right now it's it's all. I mean, tonight, for example, we've got the partridges, 
we just literally just roast them. Pancetta bacon, thyme, and with a potato and onion rosti, and a bit of white wine demi-glace. Delicious. Perfect. Mm, sounds incredible. How about venison? <laughs> give us, a, gi- uh, give us, give us a, something interesting to do with venison. So venison is my big thing. That, that's the one thing that I really enjoy. Venison, I find it, it, it gives you a lot more bang for your buck in terms, of, in terms of food prep, I think, for the restaurant. So one thing that I like to do with venison is uh, if I've got an older beast, I really like to cure it, you know, like mm. that make brazola. So wrap up older, you know, muscle joints and salt and spices and, uh, you know, and then, and then hang them in a curing chamber, you know, until they lose about 40% of their weight loss. And then, then you just slice them thin and just have them as they are. Absolutely delicious. What, what temperature does it, the curing chamber need to be at? So it's about 11 or 12 degrees Celsius, which I think okay. is what, 55 Fahrenheit, I think. Okay. Okay. And um, and I normally typically run them on average about seventy five percent humidity, but it depends. It depends on what I'm putting in there. It depends how wet it is. So uh, typically, you you will start off with a high humidity and then bring it down as the so it dries in tandem with it with the, with a piece of meat. So it doesn't. You don't get what they call case hardening, where you uh, you uh, you insufficiently dry the inside of the meat, but you over dry the outside. So it oh. forms like a crust, so it can't, so none of the moisture can escape. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, okay. So it's like a, it's a balancing act, and I, and I love venison charcuterie because it's you know you get to enjoy it in its really raw state, if you know what I mean. Venison jerky, yeah. venison pizzola, all that kind of stuff, delicious. Other than that, you know, in terms of cooking, I just really like to pair the animal with its natural surroundings in the restaurant. So hmm. if I'm cooking a nice piece of roe, you know, roe dough. You know, I think about what was around in the in the in the in the, in the forest when I when the, you know when I shot it. Typically, so blackberry, brambles, and gooseberries, and all that kind of stuff, and all those really nice fruits of the forest, or mushrooms, or truffles, to really bring that kind of sense of understanding of, of, of the actual dish of the animal, not just as as a as a piece of meat, but also as a as a kind of how it lived within its own habitat. And I think mm-hmm. I think that's the way that I find to be the most successful way in presenting games professionally to my customers. Because they can then, it then helps them make that connection in their mind between the, the, the piece of meat on their plate and the animal in its original habitat. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Do you, do you take, I mean, do you take, uh, obviously people who come to your restaurant must know most of them that you serve game. Do you take yeah. heat from people who show up and don't no. know that? No. No. Okay. No. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. And, really? and I think a lot of people, yeah, I think a lot of people are very anti. Um, uh, intensive and industrial farming and mm-hmm. I think they're quite right to be angry about it and also I think that people understand that if you choose to eat meat like you know we're all biologically omnivorous and um, this is the most ethical and the most um, fair way to do it you know as opposed to raising chickens in a cage somewhere in, yeah. you know in some battery hens in Christ knows where you know, so yeah. I mean, I think that this yeah. is this is you know, and I think people understand that. I mean, you know, vegans are only 1.6 percent of the population in this country. I don't yeah. know what what I don't know what percentage vegetarians are, but I mean, I in the U.S. in the U.S. it's about four uh, percent. No, no, sorry, four percent. Four percent of Americans hunt. Five percent of Americans are vegetarian, and the other 91 percent eat meat that they don't harvest themselves. Right. Right. So you've got 91% of people you would think would be on your side and sufficiently, at least 91% would be sufficiently uh, (coughs) understanding that if you choose to eat meat, you want responsibility over your own food chain. 
as opposed yeah. to just delegating that to some faceless corporation that is just going to maximize profit at the animal's expense. Um, I mean, I think there's been enough documentaries now for people to really see the horrors of, of, of intensive farming. And it yeah. might not just be cattle or in deforestation of the Amazon, but it might be things like, uh, you know, overproduction of avocados in, in South America that results in water being, clean water being diverted away from, right. from villages towards avocado plantations or the damage that, that soy does or the damage that almond milk does to the environment. Yes, yes. You know? and, and, and I don't think it's just like one person with one rifle harvesting one deer is going to be, is, is, you know, is, is, is the answer. But if you think about it, right, you know, I was in the Lake District in March hunting red deer, hill-stalking red deer, which is really an, an excellent, excellent thing to do. And that's probably more akin to how you guys would hunt in America. And mm -hmm. that's, you know, you're hiking for about seven to eight hours. Very different to woodland stalking. You spot them on the side of a mountain and then you have to ascend the mountain in a mm. sufficient manner so that they don't wind you or they don't see you. And it, yeah. it's a very long, very drawn out process. And the deer we shot, we shot four deer, the smallest of which was 11 stone, whatever that is. I mean, that's like, I'm, I'm, but that's like my weight. So it's like more than 80 kilos or, or there are 80 kilos or there or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, you know, once butchered and in my freezer, that provided enough <coughs> organic protein for me and my family. For months, absolutely yeah, months. Yeah, you right. think, well, how, how would I feed a family of five? On how many chickens would have to die for me to yeah. to, to to get to quote the same level of protein for my family for that for that amount of time? So you kind of weighing up the death of one animal that was killed humanely and organically as the death of hundreds of chickens, battery farm chickens. I mean, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Mm. Well, I <laughs> I agree with. Every single thing you've said in the last hour. And <laughs> Try to hear it. <laughs> I, I cannot wait. Okay, I'm going... I, I, the, here's my biggest dilemma. Do I come to London and eat at your restaurant before my week of hunting in Wales or after my week of hunting in Wales? And that's... I'm just going to have to... <laughs> I, think I think maybe after and I can bring some yeah. and uh, let and you prepare it. I'll cook it for you. Yeah, no, we do that. We do that, Tony. We've got customers. Is that, that right? Like, yeah, yeah, we do that for customers. You know, they're getting into hunting for the first time. They're not sure what to do with, you know, with the, the quarry that they've successfully brought home. You know, they probably live in an apartment, you know, so they've got to climb four flights of stairs with a dead deer over their shoulder while, while you know, like, you know, while Mrs. Katz is looking out of her window wondering what the hell's going on in the, in the, in the, in the, in the light well. You know, they're like, I don't want to deal with this. You know, they're just like, you know, you know, they live yeah. in central London. They don't want to be walking around with a, with a stag over their shoulder. So they say, listen, so what they do is they say, listen, swing, swing the car around in front of the restaurant on your way back into town. We'll unload it from, we'll unload it into the kitchen. I'll check it, make sure that it's all, it's all proper and right for, you know, hygiene standard and that hasn't been gut shot and all this kind of stuff. And then, and then, you know, invite your buddies around once it's been, once it's been, you know, in the chiller for a while and, and we'll cook it for you any way you want. You know, we, we're lucky that our sister restaurant next door, Pizzicotto, which is like a pizzeria, but it's got a huge wood burning oven. And oh. we do a lot of, we do a lot of that stuff for people. You know, we put the whole roe deer in the oven, like wood, wood burn it, take it out from them and their friends. And, it, and it's a way for them to enjoy their hunt a second time all over again. That's you incredible. Know? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's a great way. We've got loads of customers who, who ask us to do that for them. And, I, and I'm more than happy to, more than happy to. 
Mm. But, you know, you, you need to take like a couple of weeks and um, you need to do a tour of, you know, like wild, you know, like, you know, red stags in Norfolk and, and, and hill stalking in the Lake District and wild fowling in Wales and snipe Dang. shooting in a Suffolk bog and, you know, pink, pink or grey lag goose shooting in Norfolk. You know, we'll we'll put you on a we'll put you on a on a carousel of, of you know we'll get you sponsored by Purdy or somebody. You That's know? I I'm gonna need a sponsor to fund <laughs> to fund this hunting extravaganza in the UK yeah. for sure. Yeah, we'll get, yeah, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get Purdy to supply you with uh, with with everything that you need. You know. Oh my gosh. Twenty thousand pounds worth of shotgun that work that, you know, that, that that might not even shoot straight. You know, I don't know. That sounds incredible. No, no, absolutely, Tony. Drop me an email and we'll 100% fix it up for you. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I all, all I wish is that now uh, that it's 5 p.m. and you're an hour away from opening, that I was standing outside the door at 6 when the doors open and could come in and yeah. eat inside yeah. your restaurant. I'm, but, I'm having partridge tonight. I had partridge last night. And this, this, I, I'm, I'm fastidious about my eating habits within the seasons. You Good. know, it's just, life, is so much, life is so much better when you eat within the seasons, you know? Yeah. Amen to that. Well, thank you. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure.